0: Hello and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI in precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today's news is dominated by the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic, rightfully so. But today we're bringing you a story of another class of viruses called phage. Phage are viruses that find and kill bacteria, and Felix is a Bay Area biotech harnessing the power of phage to fight the scourge of antibiotic-resistant infections. So join our conversation with founder and CEO, Dr. Rob McBride, from wherever you have socially distanced yourself and learn about the viruses that are actually saving lives.
1: Thank you for joining us, everyone. Today, my guest is Dr. Rob McBride. Uh, Rob is an old friend of mine, uh, and we've sort of recently been able to reinvigorate our professional friendship through the biotechnology world in the Bay Area. Rob is founder and CEO, your CEO, Rob? of Felix Biotechnologies. Uh, Felix is a new phage-based therapeutics company. Rob, why don't you tell us what Felix is all about and why phage is the future?
2: Um, Thanks for having me on, Rafe. It's great to touch base with you again. Uh, Felix is focused on helping patients who don't have any other options. Uh, And the way we do that is by deploying phage specifically to manage bacterial infections that um, are not responding to traditional antibiotics.
1: So for Why is
2: phage, the future. Sorry. Yeah. So well, well. So for <laughs> listen, for
1: listeners who who don't know, let's let's start with this. Tell us what what is phage.
2: Yeah, phage are viruses. These are um, viruses uh, specifically that infect bacteria. So. Uh, traditionally, you know, viruses can infect eukaryotes, or prokaryotes, or human type cells or bacterial type cells, and, and phage are a subset of viruses that uh, exclusively uh, infect and, and kill bacterial cells. These are, uh, you know, one of the most prolific sort of entities on the planet, right? There's a number, I think, 10 to the 31 phage are uh, on the planet. Uh, you are exposed to them and interact with them every day. They're on your skin, they're in your gut, they're in your hair, they're in the air so they're all over the place and they're very good at killing bacteria that's kind of what they've been designed to do and uh, their ability to um you know to be used and to help humans in humans battle with bacterial infections has been known for a long time i think they were first deployed therapeutically Back in 1919 by Felix de Hurrell, who's actually, uh, after whom we named the company, he was a professor at Yale for a little bit of time. Back in 1919, obviously, we didn't know a lot of molecular biology. We didn't have sequencing. So there wasn't a lot of an ability to control phage and to deploy them in a controlled and effective manner. And so... The, the outcome of phage treatments back in, in that time was not that effective. And so, you know, in 1935 with the discovery of sulfur drugs, and then 1942 with the broad adoption of penicillin uh, and the sort of golden age of antibiotics that followed after that, at least in the West, phage, you know, were not really uh, focused on as a, as a tool for, um, for treating bacterial infections. And then uh, I would say in the last 10 or 15 years, the rise of, you know, the sort of the increasing rise of, of resistance to traditional antibiotics. So uh, that's one of the factors that have driven the research of an interest in phage. A uh, second factor that I think has driven the resurgence in an interest in phage is the, um, the understanding that, you know, the, these antibiotics, which for the most part are broad spectrum, and in addition to killing the bacteria that's causing the issue, also kill a lot of good bacteria that are associated with positive health outcomes, uh, that that is not ideal, right? So people are interested in looking for more narrow spectrum solutions and phages, obviously very narrow spectrum. Those are the two key factors that have brought, you know, sort of more interest into it. And then, you know, technologically, we are now in a place with regards to our molecular tools, our ability to do synthetic biology and our ability to sequence things very cheaply, where we are in a position that we can deploy phage therapy, uh, in my opinion, um, in in an effective way and in a way that, you know, helps patients who don't have uh, really any other options.
1: I have a, a lot of directions I'd like to go in with that, but let's talk a little bit about the synthetic biology. So my, my familiarity with phage, since my academic background is molecular biology, is a tool in the lab. We used to use phage for either you know, phage display of proteins or for various cloning techniques. What has changed or what what is the synthetic biology toolkit that allows you to now harness phage and direct them for therapeutic purposes? And and how is that maybe harder or more challenging than, than simply using them as a, a blunt ax in the lab?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So the way we think about phage, right, uh, you know, uh, again, these are viruses, these are sort of um, a protein vehicle, right? So it's a, it's a protein, either a circle, it's got a tail on it, and um, it carries something, right? And most phage, uh, wild phage, um, what they carry is sort of the code to replicate themselves inside a host, right? And so that replication, it comes along with the associated cost of death. So uh, at, in a default situation, you have this um, protein vehicle that has the ability to find some target on a, on a host. And so that's one element. And then the second element is what that protein vehicle is carrying. And so the default situation is that you find a phage that kills the bacteria, right? So that phage has a key to, to find that bacteria. So it hones in on that bacteria. And um, the second thing is once it finds that bacteria, it delivers the payload is death. And so those are those are the two elements that we think about as we think about deploying technology to help us um, harness the power of phage to manage bacterial infections, right? And so as far as the, the capsule goes, there's, you know, again, two factors there. The one is, you know, how big a payload can you put into it? So what's the size? And the second thing is um, how versatile is your ability to target that, right? So one of the challenges with phage is that it's very narrow spectrum. And so, you know, if you have a hundred species of Pseudomonas that, you know, are sort of isolated from, you know, different patients' sort of, you know, lungs who have pseudomonas infections, you may have a phage that can infect, you know, 20 of them, right? So it's very hard to find a phage that has broad host range. And so uh, as far as uh, engineering and synthetic biology comes into play, uh, having the ability to take a phage that infects a subset of your target bacteria and engineer it uh, with the ability to tune host range, right? To, To be able to infect more Bacteria than it can it could originally. That's a that's a huge advantage of um, sort of the current set of tools that we have. And and I, I would say that that area that field is very nascent. So we can do that pretty well for a smaller subset. And we're working on being able to do that more broadly, right? Because the ultimate goal is to have a vehicle that you can direct at any um, cell type, right? So that would be the ultimate goal. And then as far as the vehicle goes, um, you know, having the right now the the sort of the default for us is death, right? And amplification of the therapy, um, but We are um, working on in collaboration with folks who know more about this than us, you know, honing what we deliver, right? So we could, you know, deliver death on the one end, on the other end, we can deliver things that, you know, modify the DNA of the, of the cell that we're trying to get into or give it a, uh, the ability, uh, you know, so not just fix or modify the DNA, but also put in new genes that give the, the bacteria or the cell that we're targeting the ability to make new things. And so those are the, the, the two elements, uh, and our technology is, is focused on, on moving the fields in both of those elements forward.
1: There's a lot there again. I mean, there's a lot of work to do on payload engineering and and specificity engineering and so forth. Where are you starting from? What did Felix uh, start with in terms of kind of the founding idea or the founding thesis? And how do you think about prioritizing your your, uh, engineering effort?
2: It's a great question. And I, I think the sort of the original idea for um, for sort of deploying sage with a new flavor is, is originated in the lab of Paul Turner, right? And so Paul Turner is a professor at Yale. I did my uh, my postdoc with him uh, and he's got a great team assembled there now to sort of like take his initial ideas and turn them into into things that are adding value to patients' lives. So the, the initial idea is, you know, phage can bind Pretty much you can find phage to bind to any receptor on a cell, right, for the most part. And, you know, when you do that, you kill the bacteria and that's great. That's kind of what you want to do. But the bacteria is very good at evolving resistance to the phage. And so very quickly, a bacteria can become resistant to a phage and then you're sort of, you know, back to square one, right? So now the bacteria doesn't respond to antibiotics and it doesn't respond to the phage. And so the traditional approach to managing that challenge is just to find, you know, two or three or four bacteria, I mean phage, to kill that bacteria at the same time. And and what that does is it makes it harder for the bacteria to become resistant to the phage. And so what you're doing essentially is you're kicking the can down the road and you're just delaying the uh, evolution of resistance, right? Um, but when that bacteria eventually becomes resistant to all the phage, now you're again out of luck, right? So you're you're in a situation where none of the phage work and none of the antibiotics work. And so that's increasing. So the the outcome of an evolution of resistance is a bacteria that has more virulence. And so what really is unique about the Felix approach is we are really good at targeting phage to virulence factors. So these are things or elements uh, that the bacteria has that makes them more harmful. And why we do that is really interesting. So if you target a virulence factor, the the way for the bacteria to become resistant is to reduce virulence, right? So it trades off, uh, resistance trades off with virulence. And so our our approach is to ensure that, you know, when resistance happens, because resistance is going to happen, it's inevitable, that that resistance trades off with something that we're interested in trading off on. And so we don't want bacteria that are harder to treat after they become resistant. We want them to become sort of easier to treat.
1: No, that's fascinating. It's almost like saying, okay, you can evolve to stay here, but you got to quit being a jerk. (laughs) Exactly. Hurting the patients. That's really fascinating. And what kind of validations do you have that this works? Has this been tried in patients yet?
2: Yes. Uh, this has been deployed in, you know, sort of like in, in at, at the bench. We've done lab experiments to validate this. We have some mouse data to validate this. But the thing that we're most excited about is the technology uh, that we are licensing from Yale has um, been deployed in on a compassionate use basis to help patients uh, with cystic fibrosis who have Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections that are treatment resistant, right? So they don't respond to any other antibiotics. And so in that context, when uh, the, you know, the physician who is managing those patients says that we we've tried everything that we are, you know, that we have and, and nothing works. The FDA will give permission to try sort of some experimental therapies. And so We've been fortunate enough to to be able to help now 10 patients with this approach with our lead asset. And in all cases, we've seen that finds the right bacteria. It kills those bacteria. So it reduces the the bacterial load. It's safely deployed. So we haven't had any adverse safety events. And very important to us, when resistance to the bacteriophage, to our therapy happens, the bacteria then become resensitized to antibiotics because we're deploying our bacteriophage to target uh, the virulence factors that drive resistance to antibiotics. And so we see, you know, the the bacteria becoming resensitized and those are bacteria, once they're resensitized to antibiotics, then the patient has more options, right? And so that's ultimately our goal is to try to deploy things that give the patient more options in the long run. So we're very excited and, you know, motivated by the uh, improvement in the quality of patients' lives that we've been able to help out with um, by deploying this therapy in a compassionate use basis.
1: That's fantastic. So I I don't know much about the FDA mechanisms for this, can you tell us a little more how these early compassionate use uh, data impact then your your clinical development plan? Like, can you steam ahead and start actually planning for larger trials? Or uh, is there some some reason to kind of take it slow and and work on optimizing the, the phage first?
2: Yeah. So again, another great question. Um, I, you know, our philosophy here at Felix is number one, the base of our pyramid is safety. The second layer is good science. And then after that is, you know, like, patient value, and then after that is sort of commercial value. So that's kind of our our Maslow's hierarchy. And uh, so the first thing, obviously, is safety. Um, the, the FDA's perspective on compassionate use is that that data is, you know, you, the goal of that use is not to collect data, right? So we're not doing compassionate use studies to collect data to help us advance um, the sort of the commercial prospects of a therapy at all, right? We're just trying to help the patient, and that's the focus. In you know, in so doing, we do get some information that is that is helpful to us, But we are in the process of making sure that as we move this uh, therapy forward to be able to be accessed by more people than just those who are out of options, we do it uh, with a safety first metric, and then after that, um, you know, quality of science, and then after that, some utility for the patient. So the next step for us is we are uh, in the process of moving forward with a research IND. The technology is being evaluated using a research IND. So this is a um, uh, the output of this um, activity would not be um, sort of a the rights to market a drug. It, the output of this activity is to collect data to understand more about the drug. And it's a small trial, it's a three patient trial, and, and we're primarily focused on safety and also uh, understanding more about the dose. And so that's kind of the next step for the company is to just get more data, more controlled to get controlled data regarding the safety and sort of the appropriate dose. Uh, and so you know that in conjunction with our preclinical data and information on uh, how we make this commercially would then go into our application for um you know doing a commercial trial which would be a larger trial with right. more controls uh, so that's kind of the path
1: I'm, I'm curious a little bit about the safety risk profile is the potential risk due to i don't know some sort of host uh immunogenic event or is it some you know off-target consequence of or off-target killing or is it a consequence that you can't predict of actually hitting the target but something bad happens or is it really just a yeah. we don't know, so we have to be careful
2: yeah, so you know, again, when you're dealing with sort of humans or any any sort of like living thing, even if it's plant, I, I think the key the first thing is, you know, do no harm, right? And so phage have been deployed in humans for more than a hundred years now. And, you know, as I said, in the in the West, we didn't think about using them that much from the forties through the you know, maybe the, the late nineties. But you know, uh, phage have been used throughout that time frame in sort of Eastern Europe and, and a lot of those countries. And so to date as far as I'm aware, there have not been any adverse safety events associated with the deployment of phage. Right, so phage have been deployed through inhalation, phage right. have been deployed through IV, they've been deployed topically. So there there isn't any information to date to suggest that there could be that that phage are not safe. Um, but we move forward with an abundance of caution, right? And I think mm-hmm. the biggest primary concern, and I don't, there's not a lot of data to support this concern, but you know it's a protein, right? And you're putting if you're deploying it intravenously, you know your immune system recognizes And so, you know, you've got the innate and the adaptive. And so there's a lot of things that could happen. So, you know, for us, we're focusing on outpatient therapy, but the first, you know, the first uh, application always happens in in patients so that we can, you know, monitor for things like, um, you know, allergic reactions.
1: Sure. That makes a lot of sense. And I imagine dosing is not trivial. You probably have to, since it's a biological system, you know, the PKPD considerations are going to be somewhat different than, than you know a small molecule or, or you know, a chemical that you're administering.
2: Yeah. Not just a biological, but it's, it's an amplifying biological, right? So it makes it yeah. w- w- very, very challenging. So it, that's an accurate statement.
1: Um, are there well-worked out strategies for thinking about, thinking about dose and thinking about measuring that amplification?
2: Not that I'm aware of. I think a lot of folks are are moving this forward. And, you know, as as are we, we're learning as we're moving this forward. And the key thing for us is let the science drive us, right? And yeah. So, you know, as as you know, there's, you know, a lot of variability in humans that, you know, you don't see in sort of animal models and animal models that you don't see in lab models. And so for, for us, the the key thing is just, you know, Take this one step at a time. Check all the boxes. Make sure being as safe as possible. Get as much data as you can, and then uh, leverage that to again try to try to get this into the clinic to help patients more broadly. Yeah,
1: that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to circle back a little bit to the synthetic biology. So, in in a previous lifetime, I worked in a synthetic biology group. In fact, one of my colleagues, just a couple of benches over, um, is is one of your co-founders at Felix. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about uh, Zach. And what interests me about this is is you have the potential not only to have a really important therapy for seriously like society-threatening diseases, but also a platform technology. Um, The ability to kind of engineer these things and and tweak the targets and, you know, the underlying um, function in in a very high-throughput way is appealing to me. How do you think about balancing your activities on the, we've got to get a drug into the clinic versus we want to build a Cool platform that we could point everywhere.
2: You know, and I, I think our philosophy is that the technology is in service of um, helping patients, right? And so that's kind of when, whenever there's a question, we we use that as our guide, right? Is this is this development? Helping us um, make something that's going to improve someone's life. Uh, you're right. We've got, you know, we've got a number of technologies actually that we um, are, are working on that have originated in Berkeley. Uh, the first is the targeting technology, and, and Vivek just had a paper come out on that, which is uh, really exciting for us to get that out and to have people be able to um, see how powerful and, and, and impressive this tool is. And essentially, the first piece of technology. Um, really allows us to, you know, without needing to engineer a phage to target any host factor, right, we can find the right phage for a particular factor, you know, more quickly for less money than any other technology that we're aware of. We're not at the point yet where we can engineer a bacteriophage to target any target we want and so in the meantime we can use our technology to find the right stage to target any target we want right so that's kind of step 1 step 2 would be engineer small host ranges which we can already do to some degree and we'd like to increase our ability to do that moving forward and then step 3 is you know be able to target anything right and that may be one vehicle that may be a few vehicles but that's definitely sort of the ultimate end goal is to have this universal vehicle that you can aim at any target on any cell type right and so that's a that's a pipeline that's down the you know that's down the path we're not definitely not there yet but I'll focus 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 is just very, you know, again, it's patient centric, right? What is the problem we're addressing? Mm -hmm. Um, How are we helping these patients and how can we deploy this technology most effectively to do that? Obviously, there's a lot we can do. And so we are open to working with other groups to leverage the technology to help other people uh, and to help go after other targets. Um, But with the resources that we have and the focus that we have, we've just got to, you know, again, do the minimum that we need to do with the technology to get from point A to point B.
1: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it seems like you put a good team together to to get from A to B. Tell us more about the team. Who are you working with directly? Tell us more about some of your founding advisors and Felix family uh, at large.
2: Absolutely. So you already mentioned Vivek Mutalec. Vivek is heading up the science. He's the CSO. He's a, a very humble scientist, as you, as you know, but he definitely is one of, in my opinion, one of the top synthetic uh, phage biologists in the country and is, you know, a co-inventor on a number of the technologies that we are working with um, and so you know not only creative but um, but hardworking and and also you know aligned with the vision that's a key thing for us in our team is you have people aligned on the vision and the mission and the values uh, have non-overlapping skill sets and we think that positions us in a good place to have a chance at winning right so there's a lot of challenges but that's something we need to do well um, we have uh, Natalie Mar who's heading up our business development she was at Yale too worked in um, Paul Turner's labs for a while so deep technical experience and has been in healthcare consulting for a while now very passionate and an amazing addition to our team. Uh, we've got two scientists uh, on the ground, um, you know, quinn Ma and uh, Tanya Silvis, and they're amazing scientists, and they're helping to drive us forward uh, on the ground. So that's kind of the on-the-ground team. As far as our advisors go, uh, so Vivek is a co-founder, and then Paul Town is a co-founder, and Adam Arkin's a co-founder. So those are two of our advisors. Paul's one of the sort of the leading uh, folks in, in phage evolutionary biology, as well as phage therapy, uh, National Academy of, uh, of Science member, and just a wonderful co-founder, and, you know, obviously I was in his lab, you know, more than 10 years ago and, and know him well and uh, have some uh, good history with him. Um, we're really excited that Adam joined us. Adam and I had teamed up on a previous company. Uh, and I was very aware of the capability and the extent of the technology that he had that would um, could be brought to bear to help us do a better job helping patients. And he was very excited. And so he's obviously one of the leaders in the field of synthetic biology. So it's great to have him on the team. Um, we've been very fortunate to have Jennifer Doudna join us as a scientific advisor uh, as we move forward and think about deploying our vehicles as um, more sort of general payload delivery vehicles, Uh, having her expertise, uh, her sort of cell engineering and payload expertise uh, on board to help us uh, tackle some of the challenges that are limiting our ability to progress is priceless. So very excited to have her on the team. Um, Adam Deutschbauer is uh, another uh, scientist who's helping us out. and He's perhaps the leader in the field of developing tools to um, uh, interrogate uh, functional genomics at uh, in high throughput for low cost, right? Mm-hmm. So he's spent a lot of time, and a lot of his effort, uh, you know, building tools to do this quickly and cheaply. So that's more the technical advisors, and then as far as the clinical advisors go, we've got a um, uh, a cystic fibrosis physician at at Yale, John Koff, who's sort of heading up the research IND and administering consenting patients for the um, compassionate use amazing, passionate, uh, and wonderful to have that physician perspective on our team. Uh, Marie Egan is one of the leaders in the field of cystic fibrosis too, and and very helpful and and useful in helping direct us. Uh, Ben Chan, um, again, one of the top sort of applied phage biologists in the country. He is in Paul Tenner's lab and has perhaps, you know, single-handedly done more for the academic side of this field than than, than anyone else. And so we're, we're super excited uh, that he's uh, helping us out. Uh, and then we've got a, a young cystic fibrosis patient called Max Lebo, who um, has cystic fibrosis and actually reached out to us as he was looking to help companies develop tools to manage microbial infections in cystic mm-hmm. fibrosis, because that ultimately ends up being one of the ways that most people with cystic fibrosis right. has sort of like, um, you know, passed. Yeah. So that's kind of the team that we've got. We do have some holes that we're working on. So we're very very focused on bringing in some folks with clinical uh, experience in terms of bringing drugs through the um, the FDA. So we're looking for a CMO type or role right, right now, right. Uh, and we've got some great data science help right now. But we're looking to make that more permanent.
1: Makes a lot of sense. So anyone out there who's listening, who is or knows of a great CMO in the space, um, Felix is hiring. Uh, I want to talk about two things, Robin. These are maybe maybe different sides of the same coin, um, but they're a bit at odds. The first thing I want to understand from you is just how big and how severe is the scale of the problem of untreatable bacterial infection? Um, when I was last working on antibiotic discovery, which was probably six years ago, you know, we had some stats and it was kind of alarming, the, the number of, of you know, multiple resistant infections that people get in hospitals. And you know, this is not just a developing world problem. This is you know, a first world problem. I was at the Texas Medical Center, arguably the most modern medical center in the world, and these things happened. Um, so how, how big is the human problem, that, you know, the, the health problem, the economic problem of uh, untreatable infection?
2: It's alarming, right? Uh, <laughs> the problem is alarming now, and uh, the projections into the future are even more alarming. So right now, last year, so the World Health Organization uh, and the CDC just recently both came out with reports, so this data is all easily accessible. In the U.S. last year, uh, more than 35,000 people died from bacterial infections that are resistant to um, uh, antibiotics. So about you know just under three million were diagnosed with um, infections that were resistant to sort of first and second line therapies. So that that's just in the U.S. That's an amazing number to me, right? So these are these are infections that we thought we had managed and sort of licked back in you know 1942 with this broad broad use of of penicillin, right? And so we I grew up in an, in an era where we didn't you know I I never paid attention to bacterial infections, right? You, you take antibiotics like you take sort of like headache medication, and you know we're making a bet that we want a future that we, in which we don't go back to that t- period of time pre-1942, and that other people are also going to want a future that, in which bacterial infections are not, once again, one of the leading causes of death. So that's the U.S. challenge, right? And globally, the number this year was closer to 700,000, and these are pretty conservative estimates, but the World Health Organization predicts that if we don't do anything, right, if new tools aren't developed, and not a lot of them are being developed, so that maybe is a, is a, is a point to discuss in, in, in a little bit, the, the market challenges here but if new tools aren't developed by 2050 so that's you know less than you know, it's about 30 years from now these deaths will uh, will so there will be about 10 million deaths a year from these infections that is a number that's larger than the combined Deaths attributed to cancer, right? So, so that'll be more deaths than than cancer, and everyone knows somebody who's you know been impacted by cancer. And so, if we don't do anything, these infections are going to be more impactful than cancer. And so, that's you know that's not a future that we want. And you know we know that we're we're one of the solutions, and we're a very you know specific solution, and that more solutions are going to be needed. And so, we're just uh, focusing on doing our part to help prevent that future from um, from manifesting.
1: Those numbers are, are um, similar to what I remember, but I guess uh, updated and, and alarming is the right word. I mean, it's, I like to joke, it's the little things that kill you, right? But, <laughs> but in, in this case, in a, a very real sense, uh, you know, it's these, the, the bugs we thought we'd had. In a way, it reminds me of kind of the risk of, you know, eschewing vaccination and allowing allowing bugs to kind of rear their head again, except here we're, we're almost, you know, sort of over-treating with antibiotics and, you know, throwing them into our, our water supply and our, produce, and our uh, agriculture and kind of making it worse for ourselves. But given the, yep. given the clear health need and human need for these tools, you mentioned market challenges. Uh, that was the other side of the coin. That was the tension I wanted to, to get to. Why why is it hard to, um, you know, basically to build these tools? Why is it hard to get people to pay for innovation here?
2: That's a great question, and that's the question that is really frustrating the field as a whole, right? And so, you know, in 2019, I think three companies Um, that were developing, successfully developing new small molecules to manage bacterial infections went bankrupt, right? So, you know, here locally in the Bay Area, Acaigen was perhaps the the sort of the best known of those stories. And then another company, you know, a large company was Melinter. And so these are companies that have spent, you know, upwards of half a billion dollars taken 10 years, you know, managed all of the huge risks associated with developing a new molecule, right? So discovery, translation, preclinical. Gone through clinical trials, had technical success in clinical trials, gone through the regulatory process, you know, received permission to market. And so, like that is just a huge achievement, right? So they've, they've had this amazing success. And then they get into the marketplace and they um, they can't make money, right? So so Kaijin, you know, like their first year of sales was a, you know, I, I forget the number exactly. It's somewhere around three million, I think. And they, you know, and so they they're like, that's not going to work out. We have to declare bankruptcy, right? And so it's, you know, there's two primary reasons driving driving the sort of the revenue challenge. You know, one is, you know, how much you can charge right? And so mm-hmm. if you're treating something that's inpatient, you're subject to the constraints of this thing called the DRG, which limits how much you can charge. Mm-hmm. And then there's a program in the US in sort of like a federal program, but then there are states and hospitals that all sort of are trying to implement this um, called microbial stewardship. And the goal of that that effort is to limit the spread of antibiotic resistance. And so what the stewardship programs do is they um, will, will manage and keep New exciting therapies that work as you know last line or third line options, right? So right. so what that does is it reduces the volume, right? So you know when you're when you're trying to make money, you can you know charge a little and sell a lot or you know charge a lot and sell a little, but you know the constraints that are sort of in the marketplace today you know limit your ability to do either if you're successful. so you know it's like it's it, you know the the deck is stacked against us in terms of the market risks, which makes this a very challenging area, right? So most large pharma have gotten out of the space. Most companies in the space are not doing well financially. And, um, you know, what that means for people <laughs> who fund uh, innovation is that they look at this and they say, you know, this is not an area that we think is, you know, we're not going to put a lot of dollars into this. And that's really being reflected in the amount of investment that's gone into yeah. new infectious disease companies versus the amount of investment that's gone into other areas. So um, huge, huge challenge. Um, in terms of what can be done, right? So there are some you know bipartisan regulatory solutions that have been proposed that you know haven't been passed yet, but they they may do some some interesting things to in terms of adjusting the um the the rewards, right and making it more possible for companies to make money, you know sort mm-hmm. of like post approval. Yeah. Um, but correct. those haven't passed yet. And so it's a tough spot, right? It's a tough situation to be in. And if that continues, right, we're not going to have this innovation and this mm-hmm. drive to develop these new solutions. And we're going to have a future that is, you know, not a future to be excited about, which is not something we want here at Felix.
1: Yeah. I mean, healthcare pricing and, and healthcare economics is is sticky and probably needs to be like its own podcast series unto itself. But, you know, I'm yeah. just thinking about the kind of insane contrast with the, the recent, breakthrough you know seemingly curative gene therapies but these are going at like 2 million dollars a pop right and yep. Yep. you know what you what you outline for us is you know a future where there are going to be 10 million deaths a year without the kinds of drugs that we're talking about not, we're not talking about 10 patients globally, we're talking about millions, tens of millions. So, you know, it's this sort of law of supply and demand seems to really be um, kind of shooting us in the foot here. Uh, Are there programs, like, does the FDA have a voucher system like they do for certain rare diseases? Like, are there ways at least of making the initial risky bits cheaper or or less financially risky?
2: Yeah, so it's a a great question. So the FDA doesn't have vouchers yet, right? But I I will say that, you know, I've painted a pretty bleak picture, right? But I I do think that there are um, ways to mitigate risk, right? Market risk. And so we are, you know, the first thing we did as a company was sit down and and look at this this market challenge and convince ourselves, right? And, and we'll do the research to ask the question: if we are technically successful, right? So if all of these other technical challenges are managed, right? Is there a path to commercial viability? And that was very important for us because if we don't see a path to commercial viability before we do all the technical stuff, you yeah, know, sure. we don't want, we shouldn't be doing this, right? We should be funding this non deletively you know, this should be a, a sort of like a, you know, a compassionate use approach. And so for us, the 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 solution is very simple, right? So if, if you know, you can either, so if, you, if you've spent a billion dollars and taken 10 years to develop a drug, you've got to sell a lot of it to substantiate that investment, right? So one thing we can do is not structure ourselves like a traditional small molecule venture-backed company, right? And to be as creative as we can in terms of spending as little as possible to get to the point where we can start selling this, right? And so, you know, one of the ways to do that is to go after an orphan drug designation, right? So in an orphan drug designation, you don't have to, um, there's not as many patients needed in the trials. You can get some, you know, some tax benefits. You So you can target an indication that allows you to develop something for less money and for less time, right? So that's mm-hmm. that's one lever that we have, right? And so we're, we're very focused on doing that and to try to bring in as much non dilutive support as we can because there's a lot of push incentives in the U.S. I'll call mm-hmm. out Carbex, it's done an amazing job. Nova Repair Funds does an amazing job. And there's a lot of support from mm-hmm. government institutions to help non diligently support this. So that's one lever. And then as far as the market goes, right, the, the two levers you're praying with are pricing and volume, right? And so, you know, pricing is primarily constrained in inpatient care, right? So we are designing our therapy to be an outpatient therapy where we've got a little bit more flexibility in pricing. And, you know, when we look at the standard of care in the play, in the in the space that we're in, which is you know, Pseudomonas aeruginosa infections in cystic fibrosis patients. We, you know, if we can price um, similarly to the current standard of care and we're, uh, you know, so that's, that's going to be an important component of our financial success. And then the last point that we think is an important point to make is, you know, our argument is that phage should not subject, should not be subject to the constraints of stewardship. Mm-hmm. Stewardship's goal is to mitigate the spread of resistance. We have a therapy that actually uh, you know, decreases the spread of resistance by converting things that are resistant to sensitivity. Right. So we think there's a really good argument that phage can be a first-line therapy. Mm-hmm. And so we think with those approaches and some assumptions, right. So we you, you manage the the amount you spend, and then once you once you've gotten into the market, you have flexibility on pricing, and you are not constrained by volume. And you know, we think that's the right recipe to take, at least to show people that there is a commercial viable option here. Once you you know once a few companies start to demonstrate that, I think that will open the floodgates and have more uh, funding go into the space to develop more tools, which we're going to need as we move forward and uh, antibiotic becomes a bigger issue.
1: Yeah, I mean it's an uphill challenge. You've got the the scientific and, and clinical stuff to to deal with, and and of course these these market forces. But you know it, it may be that you know we shouldn't let a good catastrophe go sort of untapped, and, and that the health challenge itself will force the market to adjust to this out of need.
2: I mean, patients can't wait, right? That's yeah, the that's the key absolutely. thing. Yeah. So we've got to figure out a solution because there's folks, you know, dying every day who, um, you know, we may be able to help if we if we move forward more quickly.
1: I, I do love that, and this this is clear. It, it oozes from you. I love that that Felix has such a, a sort of a crystal clear north star that you know this is why you know for those of you who, who don't work for companies who haven't kind of built companies before, it's why companies have values and have cultures. It's so it helps you make decisions and it, it, it answers your questions for you. And your focus on what will benefit patients is missing from, I think, a lot of the heavily monetized drug discovery where people are either more interested in the tech or the market opportunity than, than the patient need. That's not, you know, not universally true, but your focus there is is uh, commendable. Um, what's next? What's next for Felix? Uh, you, you're in Y Combinator. That's exciting. Today you're yep. down at Illumina. So you're working with all the right people. Uh, what are your, your kind of milestones for 2020?
2: Currently fundraising, we have a, a seed note that we're looking to close out. And the seed note allows us to hit the um, the milestones uh, that get us to the point where we can start working on our commercial IND. And those are to wrap up some engineering on our lead assets, to do more preclinical safety work, and to support um, the research IND and get some information um, uh, from that to allow us to hone our protocol for the commercial IND. So, but, but, you know, 2020... Gets us to uh, a point that we're ready to start working on uh, the commercial application of this.
1: Fantastic! I'm looking forward to, to following your progress. We should have you back on uh, once once that part is underway. Rob McBride, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I appreciate the conversation.
2: Thanks, very far. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, great job on this podcast. It's been fun listening to some of the um, other podcasts, and you know, please keep up the good work because this is uh, this is uh, very interesting. So we appreciate it.
0: This has been episode 19 of Talking Precision Medicine.